Hello and welcome back. This is the 59th edition of the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today my guest is Jeff Brower. Hollywood and television are filled with people known as working actors. Often called character actors, they are the individuals who play background and secondary characters who give the shows they're in richness and realness. Though they seldom get their names above the title, they happen to be the backbone of show business because they do exactly as they're described. They work. Constantly. On projects large and small, pouring the sum of their vast and ever-changing experiences into the many different roles that come their way. Jeff Brower, in golf, would be considered a working architect. Though perhaps not a household name along the lines of Nicholas, Fazio, Jones, or Doak, Brower has nevertheless been everywhere, designing and building courses both large and small since the late 1970s. For over 40 years, he's worked, and could be architecture's equivalent of Walter Brennan, a Claude Rains, a Richard Creno, or J.K. Simmons. He came up in the Chicago design firm run by Dick Nugent and Ken Killian, and their meticulous, almost scientific approach to engineering, planning, and construction continues to live through Brower. He has a great sense of artistry and craft, but at heart he remains a technician, and you'll hear that come out a little bit in this conversation. In fact, in an email exchange we had about driving distances, I had to reread his messages several times to decipher all the math he was throwing at me. I still didn't understand it. If you've played golf in the Dallas area, you've played a Jeff Brower golf course. His office is in Arlington. Much of his work is in Texas, but he's worked coast to coast as well, and he's actually found design homes away from home in unlikely places like Kansas and in Minnesota, where his two resort courses at Giants Ridge, particularly the gorgeous Quarry Course, consistently rank as the best public courses in the state. Jeff is generous with his knowledge and experience far beyond this podcast. In addition to various articles he's written for industry publications, he's a prolific voice on GolfClubAtlas.com. In fact, over the last 15 or 20 years, you'd be hard-pressed to find another architect who's been as active a contributor as Brower, with the possible exception of Tom Doak. Even then, it's close. If you're interested in hearing or reading more from Jeff, it's out there. Opinionated, detailed, informative. In the meantime, start your favorite podcast listening activity now and dig in to my very entertaining talk with one of the business's great working architects, Jeff Brower. Let's begin on a high note. So is there anything that you're particularly angry with or upset with at the moment? Well, no, I'm not part of the outrage culture. You know, I lean a little conservative, so I, I just try not to get offended. <laughs> it's probably unrealistic, but I'm actually trying to. My mantra is to avoid drama. And like I say, other people don't let me do that. But, uh, you know, I certainly don't go looking for things to be dramatic about. Right. Well, is there anything in, in the golf design world that, that upsets you? Or, or do you have like a pet issue that, that's on your mind right now? Well, I wouldn't call it a pet issue, but... You know, it's clear that the uh, industry is moving away from the way I work, which is the design bid method, uh, with the golf course architect being an independent third party, you know, voice for the owner, you know, towards design build. Uh, and I know there's lots of guys who do it. I know there's lots of ethical guys who do it. And, and I know that not every owner, you know, is concerned with getting absolutely the lowest price. So, uh, like I said, I don't know that it offends me, but uh, I noticed the difference. And, uh, you know, there's some strengths and weaknesses to each method. 
a lot of the guests that I've had on this podcast have come from the design build world and they're they're strong advocates for the way they work. Go ahead and make your case for for the design bid method that that you've practiced most of your career. Okay. Well, when I came up, I mean, the, there was a mantra that the owner owned, the designer designed, and the builder built. I mean, the three parts of the triangle does create some tension. Uh, but then, of course, uh, I think the tension is necessary. You know, you go to the building world, although, you know, design build has always been present there, too. Uh, just separating those, uh, I mean, there are some insurance issues if you're an architect getting involved in construction. Uh, the single point of responsibility for the building uh all of those things, I think, are are still needed by municipalities, like say, private owners. Obviously, you know, free to do what they want. Um, but again, I I actually tried design build when I first started in 1984, and I found out real quick that um, you know something I might have drawn as a 10 foot mound uh, on plan. Uh, look pretty good as a three-foot mound if I was also responsible for you know the cost of building it. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, I mean, I know that you know the, the top architects are certainly concerned about their designs, and they're certainly uh, you know like to keep control because sometimes when I'm working with contractors, I mean, there have been times when I get shapers, you know, from even the best contractors who just don't cut it. But then there's also times when I've politely called the owner of the company and requested another one so you know the other side of that is i did try to drive some dozers i have driven some dozers in my day and uh you know for me i can tell you the golf world wasn't any better off with me driving a bulldozer <laughs> so is it a matter of depending on like kind of what lane you get in is it a matter of strictly like how you came into the business and your upbringing is that the biggest influence or is it does it also come down at some level to like a reflection of your personality and how you process information and how you prefer to work? Well, I think it's both. I mean, it's funny. Uh, according to family legend, of course, Brower is a German name. And, you know, you go back and ancestry and whatever. And we had some engineers working for the Kaiser and things like that. And my mom's side is English. And supposedly I've got some English uh, landscape artist, art, uh, artists in my my past. So genetically, I, I think I'm well constructed to be a golf course architect because it really is a mix of the artistic and the engineering. Uh, and you know how every architect balances both uh, is an interest. Does affect the outcome of their work, that's for sure. Uh, the other side is just by chance. You know, I was growing up in Chicago. Uh, got my you know, my dad got me the list of ASGCA architects. I was surprised to see. Kill and Nugent was one suburb over. I'm 12. I buy my first suit. I go in, you know, for an interview. They kind of give me the plan of how to become a golf course architect, which I followed, and then they hired me. So them, you know, as my mentors, you know, they were very strong in drawing plans. You know, they'd worked and you know were under Robert Bruce Harris, and he was famous for these big bedsheet blueprints and half foot contours on the greens and and staking everything out and building exactly to plan. So. Uh, uh, that's definitely uh, just the way I was trained. And, you know, like I, I wouldn't say I get angry about it, but the truth of the matter is, I mean, everything I ever heard, you know, from contractors was if, if you know, if you can't draw it on plan, then, you know, maybe it can't be built. And I, I still believe that, the, the whole thing that you can't decide anything until you get out in the field. I mean, the way I work is I draw it on plan. I think a lot of things through, and I do think there's a lot of things that are easier to figure out on plan. And then I still, I mean, it's not like I mail the plans in and never see the project. I still go out, you know, 
20, 30 times and whenever the shaping is going. And, you know, obviously there's things like, oh, this tree is 20 foot from where the, the photo showed it. Or it just doesn't look the same in the field as it did on plan or it did when you walk the center line in the woods. Uh, so, yeah, you've still got to do the final touches. Uh, in the field. There's no doubt about that, but uh, I think it's more efficient to get close to what you want on plan. Uh, you know, things like, yeah, I, I know this is also not a popular thing to say, but I call it hip pocket ideas. I mean, I do have ideas about how much a green should angle. I mean, generally those long par fours, it's hard for most golfers, you know, to hit a green, let's say 45 degrees bend to the right, you know, but that was always the complaint about the early Nicholas work that, um, you know, only, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I like to think about those things in plan. I mean, well before the shaping and it's not like I won't think about them again but you know uh, and and one of the problems is like say you get a shaper and you go out he says well I decided you know the green should turn well you know two degrees five degrees yeah maybe um, and it's not like we don't make mistakes on plan and it's, and it's not like you don't like to let the shapers you add the, to your creativity with their creativity it usually turns out to be a better product but uh, you know there are some times where you get out there and he's changing in ways you're just totally you know, incomprehensible and no matter how many notes you put on the plan uh, it does happen but right. you know usually but it's still a people business you have to establish your relationship with a shaper and whether I employ that shaper or you know Wadsworth or Landscapes Unlimited or, or Mid-America employs that shaper yeah, I think it would still be the same question of getting exactly what you want I mean you need to translate your vision to them and you know thing, and the minor tweaks do occur uh, but whether they work for me or whether they work for somebody else I don't know that I see where that would be much different I can understand an architect going to an incredibly wonderful site with great movement and perhaps sand soils and you implementing a design build method on that type of land. Cause a lot of it, you know, Bill core has said before that, you know, a, a topo map at sand Hills would have been worthless. You know, you just couldn't, couldn't capture all of the, all that movement and you had to get out there and see it and be in that environment. But it's, it's almost more bewildering to me, like when you had Pete Dye working all those years and not using plans on some of the, the sites that required a great deal of engineering because they weren't that great of a site. Is there something almost impressive about the ability to, work, to, to freelance on a, on a site that needs so much you know, engineering on it? Uh, to me, there is. I mean, I've had those flat sites, and of course, the drainage is, you know, both difficult and exacting. Uh, I'm one of the few architects, again, from my Killian and Nugent experience, who uses engineering formulas to size pipe, and I, I always have a minimum grade for self-cleansing velocity, and I know a lot of golf courses with a lot of pipe and small catch basins uh, have had problems with that with them clogging and it's really the lack of engineering skill again not knowing that there's a slope that each diameter pipe you know has to have to, to, to flush out all the leaves all the silt that gets in mm -hmm. um, the other, other thing that's interesting about drainage is that everyone wants those little 12 inch boxes or you know, six-inch circle things to minimize the catch basin. And just from an engineering standpoint, catch basins are usually what limits the capacity of the drain system. Uh, so, you know, I kind of favor big catch basins, and I know that I cannot lie. But uh, <laughs> um, is, is that a – does that put you in, in from a you know, preser pure design 
perspective or an ar- architectural perspective does that put you uh, in some difficult situations because those drains are going to get in the way? It's inevitable. Well, I did learn early on, yeah, both one time from Reese Jones when we were both doing side-by-side courses at Wild Wing in Myrtle Beach, and I'd always like to point out that mine is the one course that remains at that facility while his and Willard Bird's have been converted to housing. I let him know that every time I see him. I would, too. But, <laughs> but you know, we're just going around as friends. You know, I'm looking at his work. He's looking at my work. And, you know, he made a comment that, you know, I really needed to work harder, you know, to get the catch basins out of the main landing zones. And I also had it happen one time years ago. We did work at Colonial. Probably cost me ever working there again. But uh, got a call like Friday night at midnight. And, the, you know, the Greens chairman says, you've got a catch basin right where I always hit my T-ball. And it was the way the topography worked out. We couldn't and we didn't want to grade and change the contour of the fairway the low spot happened to be you know 265 off the tee now i perhaps was a little snarky and saying well i'd like to see that i mean you must be the best golfer in the whole wide world if you hit that <laughs> spot you know every time yeah, you, know? you don't have 265 in you i know your game <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> i used to i mean like I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an example of that oh the older you get the better you used to you know, i used to play but uh so uh yes i mean you I, you know, both from clients and again from other architects, notably Reese Jones, who you know so, has always been so gracious in in sharing whatever knowledge you know he has with me. Um, you know, yeah, if you're going to do bigger catch basins, you know, you better keep them out of the main landing zones as much as you can. As a non architect, obviously, you know, not in the design business, but as a player, you know, I'm always critical when those those catch basins get in the way you know especially around a green you know and if you've designed a golf course where you have a lot of edges that that repel balls and you after having to take a drop from a a damp catch basin area to you know more than once around it 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 seems like a design flaw but i guess that's the trade-off if you want to have a golf course that's dry and drains which is more critical than anything else that's that's part of it is and you know over the years different architects uh have you know tried different things around those catch basins you know filling them with sand or gravel a couple feet out i mean i saw one spec here recently uh gil hans's uh, maybe it was Bo Welling, but that you know the new PGA Tour course up in Frisco, right. and they they've got a thing like an eight foot circle that you fill back with sand or gravel around the catch basins. Uh, of course, you always make the the stem of the catch basin perforated, um, but yeah, just to get all the water in that basin quickly. Um, you know, the thing Wadsworth taught me years ago is you know you really if you if you put a basin in the water has to get to it. I mean, you don't want to have a one percent slope around the basin. Of course, then when you do that, it also draws balls down to the, the catch basin. Um, so there's just a lot of little things. And there's no question, like I say, it's uh, problematic, especially when grass clippings, you know, fill the, the grate if you got that plastic grate. I made the mistake one time thinking, well, we want the biggest grate possible, but obviously 1.67 inches is, is obviously the maximum opening you can have on your grate. <laughs> Other than that, the golf ball goes straight yes. down. But an, don't hey, don't ask one. me how I know that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had that one speaking of the wild wing i had a flared end section just off the tee and it went down and drained by a lake by the green and long and short of it is one of my foursome tops a ball into that drainage inlet and i says i just out of curiosity let's go down and sure enough it rolled all the way to the pond and came out and the guy (laughs) retrieved his ball it's like those mini golf when you hit it in the hole and then it goes down the tube and comes out the lower level on the other side uh, well, yeah, exactly like that. Yeah. But, you know, going back to your point, though, 
you know, part of the influence, again, you know, the experience that everybody has is of all the years I've played golf, I mean, you mentioned once around being next to a catch basin. I mean, I don't think it happens, but once a, a year and maybe once every five years, I've just rarely encountered that, that I had to move a ball for a catch basin. Uh, I've encountered long swales, you know, the, where that are damp on the bottom because you're trying to carry too much water across the fairway. So that, you now just my experience as a golfer is just to sort of influence that so let's you know i don't you know people complain about it i just haven't seen it in my experience so uh i don't obsess about avoiding yeah. catch basins as right. much as some do on those rounds when it does happen more than once uh, the, the golfer tends to remember it though <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad to hear it. it probably doesn't happen on your golf courses yeah there you go okay <laughs> You mentioned about around the green, so I mean, again, I found that even just like one acre of water coming down a hill to a green is enough to just make everything a mess. So yeah, I mean, I don't know that I need to catch base, you know, above the green, but uh, uh, you know, you you let water run too far, um, especially around the greens. I mean, there's that trade-off. If you let the swale go around the back of the green and you know go for a mile, that's always going to be a problem. So, you know, you got to get some kind of pick up the water somehow and divert it uh, from the top. And a surprisingly small amount of acreage, uh, or as my mentors, you know, Ken and Dick Nugent, uh, Dick Nugent said, never underestimate the power of water. So I've tried not to do that. Indeed. Well, going back to the design build thing that, um, I, you know, it, I don't want to say it touched a nerve, but you definitely have an opinion on it, I can tell. Do you really feel like the the architectural design world is moving closer to design build or are they... Is it just that they're more vocal about it? The message is getting out more because uh, it seems like there are plenty of guys who still will draft plans and, and will continue to do so in the future. Uh, I, I believe it's a trend. And uh, like I say, you go on Golf Club Atlas and every other architect on there but me is is pitching, you know, the design build method. Um, so I sense it really is an industry trend, um, and I do see design build uh, in other other fields as well, architecture. Um, and if you know, if it angers me, it's it's like I say, normally uh, the three methods. I mean, but one of them is that a big contractor takes control of the project, which has some advantages. I mean, all of a sudden your contractor is responsible for for doing it on budget and making some re- reasonable decisions. Um, but it sort of devalues, you know, the role of the architect in a way. I mean, I'm sure the design build guys would say um, it increases it because yes, we control the shaping and we control this and we control that. Um, but uh, you know, like I say, I, I, there's still part of me that just says, you know, it's it's che- well, the old saying was cheaper to move a pencil than a bulldozer. You know, pencil on paper versus bulldozer and dirt. Mm. Now. It's computer mouse, which is not quite as snappy a saying. uh, (laughs) And now the saying ring. You know, the other side is, you know, to be honest about it, um, I always wonder, you know, how, uh, and I had a discussion, not kind of related matter with Mike Hurdson the other day. I mean, how much of that design build is just not having had the misfortune of having a construction lawsuit, you know, go against you, Uh, you know, when times are good and you're talking rich clients, maybe you can absorb some unanticipated expenses. But, uh, 
you know, I've only been sued twice in my career, both times for rejecting dead sod, and the sod supplier thought that was kind of tortuous conduct, but, you know, that was actually my job, was to you know, reject dead sod. So, I say the same thing about the tour pros. You know, you put your name on a golf course without ever seeing it, or, you know, really not being involved, and you're trusting the guy, you know, that you're partnered with, a guy like me. Uh, I'm surprised the tour pros haven't gotten into some lawsuits uh, just the way everyone gets dragged in and, and sort of stops them. But uh, again, I think you'll see some at some point, unfortunately. And I think that may, you know, the guys will start writing longer contracts. You know, I don't think Pete Dye ever used a contract. You know, it wasn't just the plans he drew on the back of the envelope. I think he had like a envelope, and, you know, saying, we'll, you know, we'll design a golf course for you. Mm-hmm. If, <laughs> I wonder how, t- how many times he got sued. Uh, you know, I, I know he has, of course, one of the great stories in golf is he got sued somewhere, uh, someone backed over her sister in a, in a cart staging area, which he probably didn't even really design, but somehow he gets dragged in and, you know, they're testifying, they bring him on stand and they say, Mr. Dye, don't you think that you left an inadequate amount of room in the cart staging area? He goes, well, what I hear is that she backed up without looking and she nailed her sister in the first inch. If that thing was the size of Montana, she still would have hit her and and the jury found in his favor (laughs) of course so well you you have worked with a lot of uh tour pros in in conjunction with with golf course builds what is that generally like um you know i think we're, we're far enough down the road now in 2019 where the average person knows that um Let's say Fred Couples didn't actually design the whole go- and build the whole golf course. He's you right. know he's he's um, being used to help market the golf course. But what is that experience like with you uh, working with with guys like Jim Colbert and Lanny Watkins? And you did work with Fred Couples and uh, Larry Nelson and others. Well, it varies across the board. Um, you know, Fred actually never did show up on the one course we designed with him. You know, I've designed a course with a man, but I've never met him. <laughs> And that was just fine. Uh, you know, I've heard from like Paul Cowley, who did a, a course for the same developer with Fred, that he, he went out once and his only comment was, you know, your green contours are kind of ballsy there, Pete. <laughs> I mean, Paul. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, so basically, it was sort of a general hint that uh, he thought the green should be uh, you know, milder. And I, and I, the Larry Nelson and Lanny Watkins were both, you know, some of the, the same things. Uh, you know, I just don't want it to be too wild. I want it to be traditional. And then they kind of let you go. Occasionally, they'd get their arms around a, a one hole that really meant something to them. Uh, again, funny story, but at Wild Wing, when it was one of maybe our third course with Larry Nelson, uh, we have the pre-opening thing with the press, and we're taking them around. Everyone says, "Well, that 14th green, it was a huge green, mounds in the middle, big ridge." Uh, what are you thinking there? You know, and I'm trying, I'm stumbling through an explanation, uh, and then Larry pipes and he goes, "Well, when I won the Open at Oakmont, uh, that was my favorite green there, had a spine in it just like that." So I told him to put it in, you know, and then everybody goes, "Oh, yeah, that sounds, yeah, that makes sense." Um, so Jeez. the credibility <laughs> they have, um, uh, you know. Is, is something else. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, you know, Nota Begay, you know, his roommates at Stanford with Tiger Woods. I'm telling you, the, the man could have gone to Stanford without the golf scholarship. Very articulate, very intelligent, and, you know, very much, you know, into design and, and theory. And he, because of that articulation, while well, he only influenced a few holes at Firekeeper, um, I learned a lot from him. And then Colbert, 
Uh, of course, Colbert Hills in Manhattan, Kansas. Obviously, he's got his name on it. But even all the other projects we did with him, uh, he was very adamant, and he taught me just so much his background about how better players than I, and much better players, you know, look at golf courses. And, you know, they envision shots. I envision features. And um, basically, if I hadn't worked with him, uh, I, I wouldn't have – my designs wouldn't – play well for good players i mean you trained as a landscape architect you know the, the the good side of the tour pro or good player designing is you know they do know how they like to play the game it almost seems like as from a pure design perspective you wouldn't want to have access to that information because now you're trying to you know you're trying to play both sides of the coin you know that's the whole canard about making golf course, you know, challenging for the ace player and playable and enjoyable for everybody else when we don't have too many examples of where that's really true. Well, I kind of disagree with that. I'll go back to McKenzie. You know, I don't, I have the actually book about five foot away from me on a shelf, but I'm not going to look it up. But he said, we don't use bunkers to punish. We, we use bunkers to set up shots or to suggest things. And uh, basically, this is what the good players are saying. I mean, uh, again, the best quote is, you know, Jim Colbert, we're out there looking at some hole or another. And he says, Jeff, I got to tell you, the wind is blowing to the right. You know, the, the green angle to the right. You know, my lie is a little downhill to the right. I think I'm hitting a fade. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I think I'm hitting a fade. Uh, so basically, Colbert and Begay and even Lanny, when I could get things out of him, uh, he was fairly articulate and animated. Um, you know, basically, they're looking for the hazard placement, you know, to, to, uh, to set up shots. Uh, Colbert also said something to the effect of, well, you know, look, imagine you're going to a stop sign or an intersection and you have both a green light and then a stop sign. What do you do? Do you stop or do you go? Uh, now, some people don't think that's true, but I mean, obviously the best players, they want all go signs. You know, if five out of six signals, you know, tell them that to hit the fade or hit the draw, then they, you know, then they're confident. Then they just have to set up and it's a matter of execution. Uh, I know some people on Golf Club Atlas and some architects based on their writings are thinking, you know, we should do blind holes. We should confuse the golfer, um, you know, as opposed to laying it out like a roadmap. But uh, some of that's okay um but basically again the hazards to me are set up to encourage every shot in the bag and uh then the golfer who has the most of them uh, or can minimize his weaknesses is going to win the match this might be a tough one to to address and i have my own kind of thoughts on it but how good of a player does one have to be to be able to place their ball close to a hazard to get an angle for the second shot or, you know, something in that strategic concept. You know, I've mentioned this a couple times to various people, but as much as Ross and McKenzie and all those guys wrote about the same thing, you know, put it just inside a hazard. Uh, no, I'm not sure anyone ever tested that theory, you know, scientifically. Even today, we don't have that much data, but we do have some shot dispersion data. I know that uh, Brooks uh, Kepka's teacher tells him just to hit a driver if he's got 65 yards or more wide and if it's less than that go down to a three wood uh, dr brody of virginia tech has done some data analysis there's been the rna now does some uh, so the spray patterns are better known and i guess the, the short answer to your question is uh, 
you probably have to be better than the average golfer, even the average low handicap golfer, you know, playing the course. I mean, the tour pros expect dispersion of about 10%. Uh, low handicappers, it's about 12.5%. 13 maybe and and high handicappers is 16 or 17 percent and that's just to get two-thirds of their shots within a target so again 300 yard drive they need a 30 yard fairway Um, you if a fairway is 30 yards wide you can't ask them to hit one side or the other Uh, if the fairway is 45 yards wide you can you know you can ask them to hit one side or the other but uh Again, I just, you know, it would depend how hard that fairway hazard is, but it, it seems to me to be a low percentage play uh, to do anything other than try to get the ball somewhere in the fairway. I mean, would you rather challenge a hazard with a driver or would you rather challenge the hazard with a seven iron? Mm-hmm. And I think the, the question, the answer has to be seven iron most of the time. So uh, that's an interesting philosophical discussion, probably too in the, early in the day to have uh, adult beverages to enhance that discussion. <laughs> but uh um, you know, it's one I have, and I, I'm not sure anybody has the answer to it. But the truth of the matter is, uh, some of it's architecture. Um, but, you know, the 100-yard the wide fairway to give a guy, you know, a chance to hit one-third of it to the left, um, you know, it doesn't make sense in terms of maintenance and everything else. And it actually emphasizes the driver too much. So uh, I guess, you know, short version is I question – what Ross said, I know lightning should strike me from ASGCA headquarters, but uh, sure. I, yeah, take cover, <laughs> take cover. You don't be don't be standing anywhere near me because uh, I yeah I just don't see it. It's it's counterintuitive, but and I've said this before, not not obviously to you, but but in other podcasts and other people, but strategy and this is not a this is not a uh, again speaking of lightning this is not a lightning bolt of of brilliance but you know strategy becomes almost irrelevant the the as you go up the the skill level ladder it it, it becomes really interesting when you're thinking about the guy who drives the ball 200 yards or 175 yards you know just kind of the average maybe even older player at that point when you're not hitting the the driver or whatever you're hitting off the tee, if you're not hitting it that far, you do have the ability to kind of aim it a little bit more. And that's where strategy or setting up hazards and, and angles becomes really interesting. And I feel like that's why a lot of these uh, destination resorts, the Mike Kaiser model, has been so successful is because at least I believe there is no intention there of trying to set up golf courses that challenge you know, the, the tour player or, or the plus handicap player. They're just It's just set up to be a wide open space where guys can kind of bund it around and roll it around. And they're not worried about if a, if a great player goes up there and, and scores, they're not really thinking most of the architecture is not really addressing specific shot shapes or, or the, the, you know, the, the tiger Avenue to the hole it's there, but they don't worry if, if the golf courses get overpowered, it's really set up more for the shorter kind of directional players to kind of bounce between hazards. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for most of us, and uh, you know, you talk about older golfers. I'm I'm starting to resemble that remark, but um, you know, the frontal openings to the greens, where you like say bunting around, is a little maybe a little uh, insensitive, but uh, using the roll on to the greens, yeah, that's still pretty much the way it was in the golden age, and designing for that is 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 a big thing. Um, even designing for the you know. F- 
two to ten handicapper. Uh, there's, I, I think, variation in how those guys, you know, attack the course. You know, one is length, the second is accuracy, and the third is, you know, creativity, recovery shots, chip shots around the green. So I try to design for those guys, and then I, you know, those three guys, then I try to include a fourth, which is, you know, the, the D player in the group, and, and try to do holes that each one of them can, can do well on. Uh, again, going to Wild Wing, which opened in 1994, and I asked the superintendent after about five years, I said, well, what did I kill you with, you know, design-wise, maintenance-wise? And he, How many people play the back tees? He goes, well, they're oversized. He says, only 50 people played them. I go, is that a, a, a day, a month, a week? What is it? He goes, that's 50 years, you know, in the five years, 50 players in the, the five years the course has been open. <laughs> uh, people just underestimate how many or overestimate how many you ask the typical pro all oh, five to ten percent will play the back tees and we're talking a 70 100 or plus you know back tees if it's 60 700 yard course obviously it's going to be 15 or 16 percent uh so people overestimate it and yet it has been the was the focus of design and whether it's kaiser or just a lot of people coming to their senses i think that you know, re-elevating the idea of you know the course you could play every day uh, as as the prime goal is is a good movement in architecture. Another movement that's been increasingly popular, and you touched on this a moment ago, is it's been sort of like a slow creep toward expansive width, and it started at, at you know it probably started at at some of these resort courses, the Kaiser model, and uh, there are certain architects who have always advocated it. You know, I, it goes back, you know, providing a lot of playing space goes back to the golden age, of course. But then for a long time, golf courses got narrow and, and now they're getting wider. And now over the last 10 years or so, they've gotten really wide. Uh, how has that affected the way you approach design? Have you gone along with that movement? You said something a moment ago that, you know, you weren't sure about a hundred yard wide fairway and, and its uh, effectiveness or, or how that, uh, you know, affects strategy. Where have where are you on this continuum? What are your thoughts on expansive width? Well, going back to you know Killian and Nugent, you know they had done enough field testing or just observing golfers, where uh, you know corridor seventy yards wide is actually pretty narrow for the average golfer. And I've tested that myself. I've gone out to courses where I had triple row irrigation, which sort of equates to seventy yards of coverage, and at least one golfer in every foursome is out in the woods if if that's how wide you are. So two hundred feet is narrow. Two hundred twenty-five feet is average, but you really need two hundred fifty feet to keep all the golfers playing. So I do believe in wide corridors and uh, I really don't believe in putting too many f- bunkers you know, over 200 yards from the green because the golfers hurt himself already. I once recommend taking out all the trees you know, over 200 yards from the green just to let guys hit and find the ball. Uh, but I can't, I really uh, am traditional, uh, traditional American, let's say. Uh, I you know, cost a fairway costs like four times as much as a rough per acre to mow. And um, personally, I believe they're, you know, the 30 to 50 yard wide fairways and then the 70 to, you know, 89, 85, 90 yard corridors uh, works. So the corridor has to be wide, the rough cut just just deep enough to give you definition uh but you know keep the fairway maybe do the you know the intermediate cut so it is kind of proportional you know how you miss uh one thing i have tried to do and no one's taken me up on it is to vary the depth of the rough i mean you know you put a sand hazard out at 
pick a number, 250, 275. Uh, it's still a thousand square feet, whereas the rough is going to be, you know, three acres and maybe one and a half acres on each side. What if the left side rough was, you know, three inches and the right side rough was a half or mm-hmm. one inch? Um, to me, that would probably do more to, uh, you know, set up you know, the dilemma, the temptation to hit it left if that's your best angle, um, you know, versus, you know, eh, let's go to the right. Again, another story that just sort of encapsulated, Colbert, you know, got only played in the Masters a couple times, but I'm following him around a practice round. He says, you know, in the practice round, I can rope it within five foot of that creek on 13 every time, you know, and then I get on the tee round one and I set up for that and my feet just kind of change a little farther right, <laughs> you right. know, yeah. and then by the fourth round, he says he's lucky if he aims it, you know, within, within the fairway to avoid that creek. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of where the interest comes. Um, you know, the wide fairways are interesting only if, you know, you, you'd feel like a real idiot to miss it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And usually that's done by locking up, you know, one side of the fairway or the other and then giving the guy all the room that he wants to miss the other way because he just feel like an idiot if he hit it in the lake with 70 yards to the right to miss. An, an interesting impetus behind the the movement toward width and it's not obviously everywhere but it, we're seeing it at resort courses you know the bandons and the sand valleys and the stream songs is not and not everybody is is using it for this reason but but there's almost an emphasis I've, i see toward assisting the the player you know obviously i think it's a i'm all for width so you know you can easily find your ball i think eliminating lost golf balls on a golf course should be the you know would be the ultimate good thing for golf and golf design but there's also an impetus toward helping the player kind of move along and and almost um, assist him in making a good score which sort of seems like against the the grain of what golf should be you know golf should be challenging not, not punishing but but challenging and you shouldn't get an assist from the golf course unless you know how to utilize the features and and you know be really smart about it does that seem like sort of wanting a player to like post great numbers does that seem sort of against this the spirit of golf yeah, you know in my experience and again we do more public courses than anything but I don't I think it probably applies to private courses. The average golfer just wants to shoot about his average score. You know, a couple times a year, he'll go and accept the Pete Dye course where he's going to shoot 100. Um, but he's not happy, or she's not happy, shooting, you know, a 70 if their normal score is 85 because the course is so easy. So I don't know, you know, where that, uh, you know, not too hard, not too easy, the just the right temperature soup you know that kind of thing falls exactly that's sort of the magic equation in golf course design but uh, you know another interesting thing just in a casual conversation with Jack Nicholas years ago and he made the comment that you know I don't think the golf course should ever hurt you uh, and that I you know for better or for worse I think when he got into design did that, you say say that again Jack <laughs> yeah something like that yeah I dropped my soup spoon or whatever yeah. um but you know it's true i mean again if you go back to mckenzie you go back to ross they talk about courses not being too hard um, mckenzie said it best we don't want the average guy to pile up a big score and um, you know what you saw when i got in the business in the late 70s you know through maybe the the 90s when we were all going for awards was that you put just the hazards at the greens maybe one at the landing area the 290 or whatever overtime landing area um 
you know, you put you know, the, you basically we had a hundred bunkers per course in the golden age. The depression, you know, took those down. I mean, Mackenzie designed Augusta with what thirty bunkers, twenty four, whatever it was originally, and that held pretty well till we hit the boom time of the the late eighties and the nineties. Uh, but I still think it's the right idea. <laughs> uh, you know, I've seen resort courses come in. And not naming names, but you know, there's guys who are still designing, you know, the foreground bunkers to hide the fairway, or you know, courses with 129 bunkers. And um, uh, hey, I got halfway to that on a couple courses. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. as the older I get, the better I used to play, and the more I see, you know, Ross said you can over bunker a course, and like say. Uh, I was recently criticized for, of course, not having enough bunkers, but you know it was intentional. Um, the idea of the course you can play every day, the idea that a course that just fits and is comfortable like an old sweater rather than something really, really visually exciting, you know, pleasant is preferable to exciting. And um, that's kind of what I've been going for in my last five years of design. And let's say not coincidentally as a... I age. I'm hitting that phase where I've lost my distance and don't, you know, don't play as often, don't play as well. And all of a sudden designing for that everyday player really makes sense to me. I, I remember the uh, that era in the 90s and early 2000s when bunker count on a new golf course was a marketing tool. You know, that was promotional. You could say this, you know, the course has 97 bunkers and it was like, whoa, must be good. <laughs> Yeah, and right now a large portion of my work is, and fortunately they call me back. Uh, sometimes I hate to call the original architect, figuring he'd be resistant to change. But bunker reductions, I think most of the members of the ASGCA and other architects uh, doing a lot of that these days. And surprisingly, when I go back to my own courses from that era, you know, my average square foot count of bunkers might have been over 100, maybe 120 or 125. And now I'd say my average is, you know, 50 to 70 at the most, maybe 75. And I don't, you know, miss the difference. I mean, first of all, you know, the bunkering was done to sell houses. The bunkering was done to look good in magazines. But if you just go out in the middle of the fairway and like put your thumb up and try to cover one bunker or another, uh, you know, in general, let's say if a green's 50 foot wide, any bunker that's more than 50 foot outside the green just looks like it's not connected to the green uh so i'm I'm seeing the value in the smaller scale you know the simpler designs and it's usually not that difficult to remove many of those bunkers that were built in the 90s you know for reasons other than good golf it's that just you know makes me think if we think about the courses of the 19 teens and 1920s and you talk about removing a bunker now, like, you know, you'll have a certain percentage of the golf population up in arms, you know, it's, it's defacing, but how long will it take before it's, it's not acceptable to debunker a golf course that was built in the, in the nineties or 2000? I mean, we just, we just don't have the same outrage and I'm, I wonder why. Oh, I don't know either. Probably just the nostalgia. I mean, again, you look back at a career of a Donald Ross. Well, it spanned, uh, what, 40 years, and I'm sure he went through several design phases. I'm sure if you could have a seance with him, you know, he'd say, hey, you know, that wasn't my best, or I never liked that course. Uh, early in my career, I was consulting, uh, actually laid out nine new holes at Prairie Dunes. And as part of that, you know, we're walking around and somebody asked, you know, the uh, what's it? The 12th green has got the roller code. They all do, but the 12th particularly has two big ridges in it. So we got the idea to call Press Maxwell up and ask what he thought about that green. And you could hear him on the phone. 
Uh, let's see, 10, 11, 12. Oh, I never liked that. <laughs> you never liked that one. You could bulldoze it if you wanted to. Um, so, you That's know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like it. I actually talked to Bill Langford when I was in high school, you know, trying to see if I could get a job. He chuckles. I'm retired now, but we had a nice little talk. So, um, yeah, it's kind of neat to be able to, you know, have said you've talked with some of the, the earlier generation. So, um, but then, you know, I usually find out they think just about like I did um, up in Detroit, just visiting relatives, uh, stopped by a, a Ross course there, Franklin Hills. The superintendent had Ross's field notes from when he built it in whatever year that was, probably the 20s and you know his notes were just like my notes just says oh lower that green a little we can't see the putting surface you know move the forward tee out of the way because i can't see the fairway it was all about vision drainage or you know reducing the amount of cut and fill of course they didn't do the kind of grading plans we did but uh yeah the field notes were very similar but uh, you know i guess the original point is somehow the golden age guys have got a real mystique um, because they did great work and you know no one's really around to ask them what they did so it's easier to just say let's just do what they did and you know not figure out why but the game has changed um, you know the putting a bunker back 150 yards off the tee you know makes no sense moving forward uh, so boy, when you get into old courses and restorations um, you know it, it's a tough tough wicket really I just wonder if in 75 years if there'll be people at a Jeff Brower course who who are going to like stand up for your historical intent and try to protect the integrity of your design, or will it just be like, oh, whatever, you know, we'll just move things around like like we did to so many courses in the you know forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies. Well, I'm not counting on it. Uh, you know, I have started to kind of write my reminiscences. I mean, I'm 64, so, um, you know, maybe more for my son, who's, you know, a pretty good golfer. I don't know. He would be the one to stand up for it. But uh, just or Ron Wittens or Derek Duncan or somebody like that who, who would be interested. And uh, I think every architect should do that. Just, you know, whatever, you know, leave it and, you know, let people do what they want with it. But, uh, you know, Trent Jones courses have been changed donald ross courses have been changed um and all for good reason i mean you, you know time just changed so i'm i'm not thinking that i will be spared you know any of that sort of uh, respect i guess <laughs> or lack of respect well that's a good segue you've mentioned your age a few times and and not to say you know that you're old i don't want to say that but you do kind of represent this this link to a previous generation of architects and as you've mentioned you came up with uh dick nugent and, and ken kelly and and they were mentored by uh, Robert Bruce Harris, you know, who was very prominent after World War II. So that is kind of a connection. And you, and you just mentioned that, you know, you're, you might be one of the few architects, active architects who spoke to Bill Langford, who, um, you know, was a legendary designer and was also prominent in architecture after World War II as, as well as before. So first of all, You've touched on it a little bit that you you came up from this from this engineering uh, side of design and, and doing plans and, and thinking about it scientifically. What are is is that the biggest change that you've noticed? And we've touched on the design bill, but like what are, what is? I, let me put it this way: what when you came in in 1977 and joined that firm, and for your first few years, what did the world of golf architecture look like at that time to your eyes? Well, I do remember 
distinctly saying two things my first day or my first work uh, week of work and one was I wasn't sure I could finish my career some 40 years later as a golf course architect because things were pretty bleak for golf courses then uh, fortunately I was I was proven wrong but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of young architects now are wondering the same thing mm-hmm. I can't believe now is worse than 1977 you know we had a bit of similar we had the oil embargo we had the Nixon impeachment etc it's a resignation you know um and they were generally kind of a, a down period for golf um i remember the uh, introduction to world atlas of golf and uh you know uh was alistair cook was talking about it was a marvelous time you know now we have to sneak around and play golf and basically his point was they took away the tax deductions for country clubs so the golf was done and again fortunately he was proved wrong as well but uh you know killian and nugent you know came uh, like the 50s and there's other guys like ed c and uh, uh bob graves out in california they they came out of that post-World War II era, the landscape architecture training. Of course, they, when I visited them at age 12, that's what they told me to do. And then, you know, take secondary classes in surveying and turf and agronomy and business development, uh, aerial photography and whatever. So trained as landscape architects and then apprenticed with a firm that, that did golf courses. And uh, that was the mainstream, uh, like say. I also, you know, thought the golden age of golf course design was over forever because, again, when I the first remodeling around Chicago, every course we went to, some by the famous architects, you did notice a number of sand bunkers that had been grassed in. You know, people just ignored them. The greens had shrunk to circles. Um, nobody was putting bunkers, you know, four bunkers, you know, to frame things. If it didn't come into play, you know, you didn't put a bunker there. And I remember an early one of my proposals had a bunker like. 20 yards short of the green to carry it and then roll on and you know that got taken right back out of the design so uh, again the good thing about the 80s is it brought that back um, and I'm seeing now the circle going around because again with the bunker reductions you know I was just at one of my own courses again call me in for a master plan uh, some of my Giants Ridge up in Minnesota so it's some of the my best work but you know you go up there and the superintendent says well we could take that back bunker out on, on 14 I said you can't take that bunker out you know it frames the whole deal I mean it's what I call the Christmas tree all the bunkers sort of lead your eye to the green and you can't take one out without affecting the aesthetics of the whole and yet courses that do that without architects um, it, think nothing of it had a similar thing at cowboys golf club a few years we did a bunker reduction and the only one i had a disagreement with the owner was the bunkers behind 17 green which again just framed the thing to my mind made the whole as a visual composition uh so yeah but if you know if your budgets have haven't gone up in 10 years you know cutting from 100,000 square foot of bunkers to you know 40,000 or 80,000, whatever the case might be, uh, back bunkers are pretty good candidates. Yeah. One of the things is funny, I go up there and uh, usually people talk about bunkers and removal and they'll say, well, we've got to take out all the bunkers that see not enough action or too much action. You know, So defining what just the right amount of action that a bunker sees, <laughs> how many players get in on every day is sort of injured. No one ever defines, you know, what the right amount of action is, but they, they know intuitively if nothing's ever been done in that bunker or, you know, it, it sees too much action and slows down play. So mm. if you figure out what the right amount of action is, give me a call because <laughs> I'm struggling with that one a little bit. So when you joined uh, and you're working with Nugent and Killian, 
who are the other major who do, who would you have considered or did they consider their competition was i know they worked mostly in the in the midwest but um and so i don't know if they were trying to get jobs in florida or california but but who did they consider you know their competition or, or some of their strongest peers at that time well, uh, you're right. They stuck around the Midwest, and most often, you know, they'd go against Larry Packard, uh, who and Dave Gill, and there's uh, uh, one other guy, Jim Spears, and all those guys had also worked with, uh, you know, Robert Bruce Harris, and then went on their own and stayed in the Chicago area. You know, I was at least nice enough when I left Killian Nugent to move to Texas, so I didn't compete with the guys who got me in the business, but that's that's not typical. Uh, by far the best of those and the most successful in that era was was Larry Packard and you know it was funny to the point where I just disliked him I never met him well then one time Killian Nugent sends me to an interview and I meet Larry and he's just the most gracious old school gentleman and I says well I don't hate him anymore and now I know why he gets he gets all this work right <laughs> yeah he just loved him. in fact later on I took my son and you know, then a 13 or 14 just starting golf down to play golf with larry and it's broke it just because it's like well if you want to see what you know what old school gentleman is and etiquette and manners you know i just want you to spend some time with this guy just to kind of learn how to do that uh, he was he was just a great guy and a very good architect too well he didn't like mckenzie he was never a good golfer till after he retired and you know went down to innisbrook which he partly owned and played every day and you know actually got to be quite good as he got older in contrast to the rest of us, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know that that whole period that we've been talking about, going back to the uh, post World War II, is is pejoratively termed the Dark Ages by many people. Uh, it doesn't seem to me. I, I have a different opinion. I, I would never call it the Dark Ages, but to me, it was it was really the the blossoming of of a, a scientific era in golf. You coming out of the war, you have uh, much more technology at your disposal as an architect and as a greenkeeper than you did before. And there's maybe a learning curve on how to best implement the these technologies, but these technologies, you know, are viewed at that time by these architects in the you know in the through the fifties as money saving and time saving objects, and they can really help a club financially. And people are playing golf for a different reason as well. You know, they're not they don't have that same kind of hand to hand combat view of golf that the that the club player of the nineteen twenties did. You know, they're out there to pass time and relax and get away on a Saturday. So to me that doesn't seem like a dark age. Uh, what did you does that ever bother you like, you know, that this sort of lineage that you've come through in your design career is is sort of dismissed summarily? Yeah, I guess if uh, I needed to get myself outraged about something, that would be one of them. Um, and the, the funny thing is, you know, of course, again, when I was 29 and opened my own business, I'm sure there were people out there saying, how does this guy grab a job away from, you know, an established architect? And now I'm looking at younger guys, and that's fine, except that I see the same mistakes being made. I mean, when we remodeled Lacoste, you know, one of Dick Wilson's courses, right. Um, and or I see a Trent Jones course. One thing I notice is they didn't miss the details that I, I still see shapers today. I mean, one thing, keeping the bunker uh, dry, keeping water from draining over the top and contaminating the sand, uh, the drainage and so forth. And those guys just didn't miss the details. And I, every generation, I think, when it comes out, especially if they're not coming out of that landscape architecture and engineering training, I see the same, the same mistakes being made over and over by newer architects. And um, and people hiring them. I mean, 
again, that's the clients. They don't they don't understand it. You know, pretty picture sell and things like that. So. Um, they were better than they give credit for. You know, the other thing, yeah, it is engineering, it is maintenance saving because golf was a tough business, and usually it is with a few brief shining periods where it's you know spectacular business to be in. Um, but you know, philosophically, you know, you go back um, to that Chicago school, and the, and they were writing about. Well, there's two things that happened. They were writing about streamlining the design yes. and the longer, broader slopes. And that's tied into, you know, the design art deco and architecture, uh, you know, streamlining passenger trains, jet planes instead of prop planes. Cars. And cars. Uh, and, and certainly all of that sort of was a, just a mindset and a perfectly understandable mindset so like anybody you know any muckraker for politics or whatever it's easy to look back and pick apart that you know the things that uh you know maybe weren't as good or just you know fads change or whatever um but you know you have to remember too that generation you know grew up with a depression followed shortly by world war ii uh, and, you know, they didn't want to look to the past. I mean, anything that was pre-World War II or, or Depression era, um, they wanted to do something completely new. I mean, that was the American mindset down there, and that's what they did. I mean, again, to look back and say they were somehow wrong uh, to have that mindset after all they went through, I mean, that, to me, it's kind of small thinking. I agree. The one thing that bothers me about this discussion about this period of time is is i i truly believe there's a, a huge misconception about this uh, part of the the what goes into thinking about determining this this era the dark ages is that this belief that golf courses got difficult you know they got punishing and penal and i think that robert trent jones is responsible for for putting that in people's mind because of the 10 or 15 you know tournament major championship golf courses that he designed or renovated and kind of made that kind of like overshadows most of the thousands of golf courses that were built. But I find it to be the opposite. The more I look into it is that, as I said before, this is a period of time where people are using golf, not as really as a competition so much as an escape. They just want to relax. They want to go out and have a nice round of golf. It's an entertainment. So golf courses are, and we, you alluded to this earlier, golf courses at, of this era are generally let there's not as many bunkers on them they i think maybe the corridors began to shrink a little bit but they're not they were not designed to be penal they were not designed to punish they were designed to be uh very playable and to get people around and if anything that's the criticism of the golf courses is is there wasn't enough diversity in design this sort of this mindset of streamlining everything making them maintenance friendly making them uh, uh, accommodating to a wide range of players, it stunted sort of creativity, and it was maybe a conserv- conservative way to approach design. But they were not designed to be difficult or penal. Uh, well, I agree. Um, you know, over time, something that turns you know is a good practical idea gets adopted you know, by other architects, especially as time went on. And you know, Wadsworth invented the concept of the separate golf course contractor, and basically, you know, they would take to almost every architect better drainage, you know, better better construction techniques, and then you know more travel and whatever. Everybody was starting to borrow ideas, so the good ideas turned into the standard, and then the standardized did have a certain sameness to it uh, included in that again looking at Jones courses and you know the more I play them even Hazeltine uh, Peachtree you know some of those things that uh, I play them with a new eye and say wow this really is good and like say people take the top two or three courses that Jones designed 
you know, project that out to his whole career, it's not fair. Same thing is true, you know, the other way, you know, you look at Ross or McKenzie and you think uh, Pinehurst or Cypress Point, uh, and, you know, you tend to think that they never had a clunker, which is was not true either. Um, exactly. So, yeah. so anyway, yeah, I think there is a thing. It got too standardized um, in looking at, you know, when we remodeled La Casa in conjunction with Damien Pascuzo and Steve Pate. So we started studying Wilson a little bit. And, and Wilson and Jones, I guess the one thing was the only, you know, palette they had was sand bunkers, lawn panel, and trees. Uh, they didn't experiment at all with the, the mowing patterns. Uh, and, oh, well, water would be in there too as well. So, you know, I think the best thing was, you know, Pete Dye took him to change the whole mindset and somebody from outside the industry, outside the landscape architecture training, just to look at it with a completely different eye, um, you know, take his inspiration from Scotland, although what he brought back was distinctly his, uh, and, you know, get people thinking about design again. Uh, and that's great. And then it happened again with his protégés, guys like Gil Hans and Tom Doak and, and so, and Bill Coor, you know, who, who just trying to do something different design came back to the top you know again not coincidentally when times were great no one ever considered what happened uh, again I think all of them are, are gonna see bunker reductions green flattening in the case of Mr. Doak uh, you know if it happened to Nicholas happened to Ross it happens to everybody the, you know the top guys aren't going to be spared in the future the same forces will be at work that you know try to bring golf courses all golf courses nearly all golf courses back to the middle of you know some kind of practicality versus great design. That's interesting. So, so you, the, the just the natural forces of golf and age and generational passing. There's sort of a, a tendency to ameliorate the most distinctive features of a golf course. Is that kind of what you're saying? I think so. If they don't work uh, well for the superintendent or well for the owner, you know, if they stop play or whatever, I think they will be changed and. I don't know that that's a terrible thing. I mean, Augusta has changed every year. I mean, for a very specific purpose of you know hosting a, an important tournament, but things just change. You buy a house, you add a room, uh, you change the wallpaper, uh, and you just may adapt it to how golf is played at, at that time. How you live in a house, how golf is played on a golf course. Uh, golf courses evolve. You know, sometimes in a negative way. You know, as nature again pulls the trees in, like you mentioned. Uh, sometimes in a positive way. After 20 years of, uh, you know, hitting it out of bounds on a hole, you know, you move it away from the road. Yeah, it's, just, it's just that simple. Like I, said, I always say, if it's hard to maintain, I don't expect it to last more than 15 years. I'll just, you know, just to take a take a different view on that, I wonder if just the way we communicate now and, and everything is so visual and the way social media can, can immediately catapult certain things to the forefront of people's attention and keep them there often. I wonder if just the way we communicate and we're, since we're also in this state of uh, great respect for the past and, and, and a state of a moment of preservation and all the restoration that's been under, you know, undertaken on some of the great old courses over the last 25, 30 years, I wonder if that moment gives us a greater appreciation for what's being created now and the people, at least for the foreseeable future, are very respective of the integrity of these golf course designs. So a Tom Doak or Bill, Bill Coor course is going to be protected in a way that the Tillinghast course wasn't protected through the Depression and coming out of World War II and then through the great phase of renovation and modernization in the middle of the century, uh, which also you could attribute partly to 
uh, the desire to be modern, as we just spoke about, but also maybe there just wasn't a, a whole lot of knowledge about those golf courses. You know, that that's a criticism of that age is that very few people were kind of alive who were alive in the 20s and designing golf courses. So they didn't really have a chance to, to you know, to create protégés and, and pass along this knowledge and this respect for the past. It was kind of, there's a, a breaking point and everything kind of came out clean again after World War II. But now I sense maybe a, con- a continuation of respect for, for designs and, and maybe a greater sense of protectionism. So that's just maybe the other side uh, of the coin is the moment we live in um, will kind of create this sense of, of wanting to uh, respect and observe the intent of the architecture. Well, I hope so. And uh, of course, we have to probably go through restoring Jones and Wilson next. Um, and, and, you know, the case is, you know, 10 years from now, although actually most of the, the big courses of the 90s are getting near the end of their life cycle where they have to replace infrastructure like irrigation. Um, yeah, it's an interesting, again, adult beverage conversation. But <laughs> yeah, we have social media. Uh, and we have more information, you know, and ever available at, at, at the moment. But uh, I, we don't seem to have as much deep thought. It seems like it, to make a presence in social media or anywhere, you know, you have to scream out a, uh, a headline or a soundbite to get people's attention. And uh, certainly, I think Doak and Core are gonna and gonna benefit from that because you know uh, the signature architect has always been sort of the shorthand for good design, ignoring you know the depth of the field, which is deeper than ever with great designers, um, you know who may never get a chance to have their stuff restored. So, yeah. uh, your work at La Costa was that in any way sort of like a restoration of Wilson's intent or, or what? Describe the you work there and how it related to what Wilson originally and Lee originally built. Yeah, well, uh, interestingly enough, you know, we go in there and the we did two courses, finished one, did did the other. Uh, and the first one's called the Champions, and the club was, you know, just uh, restore it, restore it, restore it. Uh, and we did restore it. I think we reduced the bunkers from like 170,000 square feet, which is huge, to like 130. I mean, it still has a lot. We took out some of the frontal bunkers in front of the greens and whatnot, but basically worked very hard to recreate the, the Wilson style. I mean, actually, I took his favorite bunkers, you know, copied them on a computer, and then occasionally would combine them or whatever, just to make sure that our grading plans kind of reflected how how he designed them and got them built. Um, but then, you know, again, uh, uh, the second course, you know, we go in, we have the initial meetings, we start talking about preserving it. Uh, that's called the legend course. Now it used to be north and south. Uh, uh, and the members said, good God, don't, don't restore that. Make it easier. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we love it, you know, but we just can't play it. So it, I think it works for them. I mean, Lacoste is private and they rotate the courses every day between the private members and, and the hotel guests and the public. And, uh, yeah, I think it works well to have one course hard and one course easy. Um, so there's both ends of it. It's like, you know, uh, you know, the old thing in design, form follows function. And again, if you are designing primarily for mid-handicap club members and resort guests, I mean, the sincerest thing you can do is ask how they play the course and then 
put the bunkers there or not there, as the case might be, um, and design it for them. And if that means you have to change a Dick Wilson design, there's uh, for as much screaming about preservation as there is, you know, these guys are saying, hey, we don't have any members from 1950. You know, we all our members are 2000. Uh, so let's design it for us for a change. We're the ones paying thousands a year, to, you know, to belong to this course. And uh, for me, that's hard to argue with. I mean, We'll go back to Ross, 400 courses supposedly, and maybe 50 to 100 that he actually visited, you know, certainly 25 or so acknowledged masterpieces. But, you know, what about the other 300? If they become public courses rather than private, or, you know, they're 6,300 yards and there's room to make them seven or you name it, um, do we have to restore Ross, you know, to exactly what it was if it's just not working in the context of today's golf and uh, for me anyway the answer is uh, you know no you know move the bunkers to where they need to be but be sympathetic about it um, you know of course can't be what it's not going to be I've done it and I've seen a lot of architects have taken old courses and try to give it the moundy style and you know dramatic this and that and you can tell it just doesn't fit you know it's like six pounds of course in a five pound bag so you know my recommendations are always to be sympathetic but do what you need to do uh, to make it function and a lot of that's the irrigation and a lot of that is is the cart path um, you talk about narrowing well really what happened is you know, they started out with a single row irrigation that threw about 60 yards wide not equally you know we went to double row then we went to triple row and uh, basically when it was double row people let the rough and the trees grow in because they just got to the edge of irrigation and they all wanted green turf uh, so unknowingly you know they sort of let change the design to fit the irrigation to fit the technology yeah and you kind of mentioned that earlier design changes to fit construction technology uh, and maintenance technology all the time so now we're going back to triple and quadruple row irrigation to get those widths back uh, and as expensive as irrigation is it's still a pretty good construction value and so that's allowing us to take the courses back out wider and wider going back to nugent for just a second i have to point this out a friend of mine on twitter posted some pictures the other day of and this is a guy who's who's traveled around and, and you know love loves band and dunes and loves sand valley and is into all that but he posted pictures the other day of a golf course outside of chicago called george dunn national which was originally yes. called forest reserve national and the <laughs> they were overhead pictures of some of the greens and they were some of the most incredibly interesting shapes that I've, I've seen and the way that they it started the discussion and the way you know people really liked the golf course and described all the 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 unique characters of it it sounded really quirky and and really avant-garde in, in a way did you have anything to do with that golf course because it was built when you were working with them yeah um i certainly participated in the plans you know near the end of their partnership uh kind of worked out that i work more with killian and bob loman work more with uh, dick nugent so uh bob was you know the field guy on that but certainly the whole office went down it was the biggest project we had at the time and tried to contribute so yes in the plans grading drainage and then marginally in the field um yeah funny story though you know you talk about standardization and this i just love these old stories so forgive me if it's I love him too. Not, Keep him coming. <laughs> so it's a Dick Nugent project, and Bob and I, you know, as the as the minions or whatever, 
we'll go in the Monday morning meeting and says, listen, guys, this is a big chance. We need to vary our designs. I mean, we're getting complaints that every green has two mounds behind it. And so Bob and I came up with this. So let's do a zero mound green and then a one and then a two, a three, four, five, six, and then we'll repeat that sequence. So every green you know, has a different design style. So we did it on the plans. And then we go out to this first field visit after Wadsworth was the contractor, built four or five holes. And Ken looks at the first green. He says, well, we need mounds behind this. <laughs> and so, you know, we're saying, Ken, you know, we talked about this. And he says, well, we need to add a couple mounds. And we go to the second one, had two mounds. You know, he kind of liked that. Go to the third one, you know, he, he was okay with that. But, you know, when we got to like the five mounds, he goes, this is way too in- intricate, you know. <laughs> Anyway, Bob and I got so frustrated. We said, we're going to lunch. You know, I can't even stand this. You know, we, you know, you can change it any way you want, obviously. We let Dick and Ken argue it out. Similar story, you know, I, my last project with Ken after they split for a year, and then my first, actually turned into my first project on my own because Ken went out there with Jim Colbert, Desert Rose, which I know has been remodeled again, but um, kind of neat for me because I knew I was leaving Ken. I don't think he, well, he may have known it, but, you know, chance to try out all these theories that I was never allowed to try out. So anyway, they always did the mounds behind the green, and I just had the idea that I was going to dip down to a grass bunker behind the green and then push the mounds back, you know, because nobody likes to chip downhill if they've gone over the green. So we're standing on this tee and, or the fairway, and I'm thinking it's looking pretty good. Colbert's going, wow, this green has some real depth. It looks good. And even Ken is saying, you know, wow, this, you know, this is good looking green. And we walk up to the green and he says, well, what's this valley before the mound behind the green? I says, well, first of all, you know, not every green has to have back mounds. Second of all, you said you like the look of it. And he goes, no, we got to pull this mound up to the green. <laughs> and so Colbert, you know, kind of animated as he can be, you know, says, Ken, what are you saying? I'm the client. I said I liked it. And Ken kept arguing that's not the way he did things, even though he liked the idea, you know. Um, so maybe that's just an example of how any architect, maybe it's like any football coach, right? They all start out, you know, being trick plays and gadget plays. And, you know, after a couple of years and a few of them go wrong, they kind of trend to go back to what they know has worked. Right. Um, another old Nugent story. My first uh, day on the job, we had a remodel like North Shore Country Club in Chicago, just one hole. So he said, design me up a par three. And so I designed one with a forced water carry. Dick looks at it, says terrible, walks out of the office. I'm thinking I'm going to be fired before the end of the first day for doing something wrong. Comes back in an hour later. He says, you know, I realized why I didn't like it. We tried a green like that in 1959 when we first started, and, and we got a lot of criticism, so we don't do that anymore. So, basically, yes, yes, scar yeah. tissue. Yeah, scar tissue. He, he can't even, and that's true of most architects. They can't even tell you why maybe they like something. It's just embedded somewhere in their experience that, you know, somebody criticized them or didn't work for some spectacular reason or even a subtle reason. Yeah, I mean, but, I think uh, everybody's got to have some sort of internal DNA that, that motivates their, their sense of aesthetic or their their sense of the, the way they operate. It's, it's, it's human nature. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing, is, and again, part of just who I am. I mean, I find myself repeating everything Dick or Ken, not everything, but most things they said to me, to them, to my, you know, protégés is, you know, Dick says, listen, you know, you, if you can break the rules in, in golf architecture every once in a while, but if you do it too often, it just gets goofy. And I, I've kind of maintained that where most of the holes on my courses are, you know, pretty standard, you know, what you see is what you get. And then, but I do keep in mind that at least one hole has got to make you go, hmm, 
uh, you know, and get some criticism or, or the course is too dull. But uh, anyway, golfers yeah. like to go back to standard, you know, uh, talk about chipping areas or I, I've done one green, certainly not original, but I saw it at uh, uh, Ross's uh, White Bear Golf Club up in up in Minnesota. You know, I'm one of the few guys, you know not ashamed to say steal from the best i mean that's what design's all about if you're gonna steal make sure it is from the best yeah absolutely but it was kind of a punch bowl but not fully punch bowl the right side was visible and the left side was kind of hidden so i I, i've done you know versions of that green and you know i mean you can chip it off the right hand bank you know any kind of punch bowl or kick plate and uh, some golfers say well you know I can't hit the ball right at the flag there. I've, I've got to hit this bank and roll it down to the flag. And it's kind of like, well, that's kind of the point, you know. And, you know, it's, the light bulb goes on and some guys like it. And some guys just, just don't understand why it can't be, you know, 150 and hit an eight iron. Uh, it's just right at the flag. Um, well, another thing, is, I'm, not, I'm like Rosanna, Rosanna, Dan. I had another thing. Um <laughs> You know, the courses that'll take, uh, you know, if the pins back, they'll move the tees up a little. There's so many golfers that like a hole to play the exact same length every day so they don't even have to think about their club. I want to be driver seven iron every day I play. Mm-hmm. I've never never understood that. I've usually designed some long tees on the middle, so some days, and if it was me, that when the tee was back, the pin would be back. So a hole that would normally plays 360 could be 400 or 405 or something the next day. To me, that's more interesting, and yet, you know, golfers themselves, uh, you know, like to push people towards standardization for their own convenience. Yeah, you mentioned Goofy a minute ago, and, and looking at those pictures and the, and the whole concept of the the George Dunn course, it, it did seem all goofy, but in a absolutely delightful way. I mean, it's it's okay for that kind of goofiness to seep in. I mean, we we need diversions we need sort of uh, the off-kilter golf course now and again just just for our amusement or just to, just to shake things up i wonder if that if at that time you felt that that was trending on goofy because that seemed like maybe uh, starting to be the tipping point in the right around 1980 or so between one style of design and then the launching of the 1980s sort of go-go over the top you know bejeweled rococo style of golf design yeah you know, Kemper Lakes had some of the same sort of shapes, and uh, you know, Nicholas for one when they played the 1989 PGA there. So with these greens, he was diplomatic, but he called them unusual, and you could tell, you know, what he meant is you have to putt around a corner sometime, and golfers would hate the fact that you'd have to putt around a corner. We actually philosophically discussed that, and you know, we played Kemper Lakes every day after work after it opened. Our office was right on the fifth green, kind of an old farmhouse, and you know, same thing. After four years, none of us in the office had ever maybe one had to put around a corner so we concluded that wasn't that big a, a problem uh, dick and ken were landscape architecture graduates um, they did realize that it doesn't it has to look good you know from the ground more than from the airplane view and we're you know very big on the visibility of everything but uh, the extravagant shapes you know were mostly the landscape architecture influence you know that you the earth is putty that's a landscape architecture saying from uh, hideo sasaki also in a university of illinois graduate and you know that's kind of how they looked uh, which is obviously different from the origin uh, original ideas in golf um so the other side of that is dick was a dick nugent was the kind of guy 
you know, who said, if it's not big and bold, nobody's going to notice it. I mean, he basically it's the TV generation or the action movie generation. Now, I don't see that changing because you got the video screen generation and the 3D graphics just get better and better and better. So, um, I see that as moving forward, uh, you know, still a, a big design thing. It was an interesting partnership because Dick was always into the big and the bold and, you know, didn't think anything as subtly. Ken was actually less prominent, you know, Dick was a more forceful fighter for what he believed in. But Ken kind of did like the this, this subtlety of some of the old-fashioned designs where a three-inch roll right here might make a difference. So uh, I guess if you're going to have a partnership, you, you instead of getting the guy who thinks the way you do, you probably ought to get somebody who thinks differently. Uh, that's the only way partnerships really work in design is, you know, complementary talents. Giants Ridge came up a, a few moments ago, and as you mentioned, that's some of your best known and, and highly regarded work. And I was looking at photographs of the quarry course and trying to put it into context. Unfortunately, I, I haven't been there. Uh, I've actually never been to Minnesota at all. So um, and I'm looking at the pictures, and it's, it's, very, it's very dramatic. And the first thing that came to my mind as just to try to put it in context and draw a comparison was, was Mammoth Dunes. It just There's a wildness to the landscape that that that's where my mind went first and then the more i started to to look at it and notice features and there's a there's a sharpness it has a a slightly cleaner aesthetic than than some of the modern stuff that we're seeing now and i looked at some of the shapes in the bunker and then i went to mike strands and i thought this is very very Strandsian. and i the more i looked at pictures the more i became convinced that that's the the correct correlation and then i and i later read as i was researching this interview that that you had also mentioned that in a different interview that that strands was on your mind so i felt validated in a way but i would love to explore that a little bit more about uh your creation of that golf course and and how you approached it and what was on your mind uh yeah i love talking about it and like i said that is where i'm going up to a master plan and actually it, the almost what 15 years that's been open and 20 for the legend tree encroachment turns out to be one of their biggest issues just to tie it into another topic but you know the legend course was the first one we did up there lanny watkins uh, was our signature consultant and uh we tried to capture the north woods i mean it's just beautiful i think the thing we did different there that made it successful is they up in the north woods they tended to poor boy it, you know, double row irrigation. We went to triple and quadruple and, and got a huge scale, which was unusual up there at the time. Uh, it faced some environmental challenges. I mean, some of them were more political than actual environmental. Uh, but when it came time to do the second course, and we looked at, you know, across the lake, and we looked, we had a choice of a lot of different sites. But one of them was the old sand quarry, where uh, it had been in operation since the 40s. It also turned out to be where we got the topsoil for the legend course. Uh, and it was chosen specifically to avoid, you know, any more environmental challenges. Uh, but they were worried about it. They said, how can you make a golf course out of this decrepit old mine? Because, like I say, environmentalists were all for restoring it as something. Um, so to do that, I said, well, I can see it being the public Pine Valley. You know, that's sort of the shorthand you have to use to get people to understand design. And we couldn't get on Pine Valley, but we did go to see some of Strance's courses. We went to Fazio's World Woods, and uh, I got very uh, – simple instructions you know make it look like strands make it look like maybe more fazio just make it a little more playable than a certainly mike strands uh, golf course um you guys always that bland and in my personal opinion strands was the you know one of the best artists ever but uh 
you know, you'd have to tone that down just a little just to make the thing a playable resort course. So that was the instructions we got. Again, a lot of people couldn't see how that could be a good golf course, but by seeing what Strance and some others had done on similar sites, they got excited about it. And, uh, you know, it's turned out to be uh, usually the top-ranked public course in Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, Maybe the best compliment I ever got was from a golf writer took up there, and which apparently we ought to get you up there at some point. Um, he says, you know, if I didn't know any better, I, I would have never guessed that the same person designed both courses. So uh, that's as good a compliment as you can get as an architect, and that's as good a situation as you can have as a resort, uh, having two totally different courses. Mike Strand's career was so interesting because he was – uh, so artistic and, and but also because he was able to express that he found jobs and owners that allowed him to kind of create his vision which seems like it's such it seems very rare these days to, to be in that situation in golf design where that's even possible you know given that we're not building very many new courses and uh, just the, the way trends are going so it makes me think i wonder where strands would be if he were still alive would he, would he have toned it down would would he be in doing uh, historic restorations like so many people are? Like, what where would he be if if he hadn't passed away in way back in two thousand? I think it was two thousand five. You may not think about that, but it would be interesting to project his career forward. Well, you know, obviously there's a lot of what ifs there. Again, call me cynical if you need to. Uh, he was the hot guy for a while. I think you know Fazio before him. Uh, you know, Doak, Cor Crenshaw, now Gil Hans seems to be the hot guy. My guess would be he would have stayed hot another five years, maybe 10, and then sort of faded back. Um, and then who knows what he would have done. I think he also would have had a little pushback on the difficulty of his courses. Um, again, there's the golf architecture is the blend, the you know, artistic, the playability, the maintainability. And, you know, as the economy soured a little bit for golf, uh, his courses would be subject to the same kind of questions of, you know, whether that's the right balance or not. I wonder if there's anybody, I, I guess we'll never know. It's, it's too bad, but I, I don't, I wonder, let me, I'll, I'll back up and preface it by this, you know, Doak and Corn, Hans and Kidd, and, you know, a lot of the other people who, who are sort of the A-listers um, are, are incredible visionaries and incredibly artistic and creative. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But Schranz had something really unique, a very unique perspective. It was very personal, and, and nobody else was really doing anything much like that. I wonder if there's anybody, if given the opportunity, who'd be willing to take a chance like that, as Mike Strands did. I, there was a, a period in the early 2000s when Jim Eng was doing a lot of really unique stuff. Nobody else was really you know, making those kind of statements in design it was very controversial not everybody got on board with it but he was another visionary and and you know he's kind of basically checked out now as well you know he doesn't want to he doesn't want to play the game but i wonder if anybody would be willing to take that kind of a or anybody that has that sort of like like vision that would be willing to put themselves out for that level of potential criticism now Oh, I think you can count on somebody doing it. I mean, you know, you obviously have to make a name for yourself in this business. And I'm convinced, I know Tom Doak or Bill Corr wouldn't say it, but, you know, having worked for Pete, that he, he counseled them. You got it to be different. I mean, you know, Pete told me and everybody really that, you know, he looked at Jones's courses and he knew he had to do something completely different. And then his protégés, you went to the early American look, which is completely different than what either Pete or, or, or uh, Jones did. Um, so someone's going to take a look at the minimalism now, which, you know, most people are saying, oh, we've hit the, the nirvana, the promised land. But, uh, 
popular culture just looks for change. So uh, if you could, again, if you can figure out what the next big thing is, give me a call. I may extend my career, but, uh, you know, somebody is going to figure out that, you know, something different is going to sell and it's going to have to be visually spectacular again i don't see uh, the next generation again with the video screens uh, going for anything subtle so i think something uh, mimicking strands would be a great way for a young architect to try to make a name for himself what is something that you've not done before in your career that you'd like to get a chance to do well, I've I've been fortunate. I've got some oceanfront sites in Indonesia. Uh, nobody gets to see them, of course. And of course, the sites up in Minnesota are great, and they're also a little remote. Uh, I've been pretty happy with the career. I mean, obviously, I think I was aiming to be Pete Dye and came up short of that. I think I I'd just like to have a few more chances at the high end courses. Uh, but I don't really regret anything that I have done or haven't done. Obviously, I could uh, I still doodle golf courses all day long and uh, never lost a passion for it. So, uh, you know, maybe the, my next project is will be the best one yet. Hopefully. Well, yeah. a, few more, a few more questions before we close out, Jeff. Uh, is there a great undiscovered territory of, of Texas that, that would be perfect for golf? You know, for a state that size, and there's great golf in Texas, no doubt, but for a state that size and, and the different landforms, it, it's probably not, maybe, it hasn't produced the level of golf maybe that you might expect or maybe that it's capable of. Are you aware of some place in Texas that could, you know, the Sandhills went undiscovered by golf for, you know, forever until they were yeah. all of a sudden discovered? Is there something, is there some great potential in Texas somewhere? I think that uh, Paul Cowley and Lanny Watkins actually discovered that Lajitas out in the you know West Texas, far West Texas, um, actually has one hole with a green across the Rio Grande in Mexico. But you know it's in the mountains. Texas has a lot of variety of landscape, and, and they they found the best of it out there. So hey, you might be interested in talking with your Paul or Lanny about that because it's, it's spectacular. I, I had Paul on the podcast a few episodes ago, but we didn't we didn't talk about that specifically. Uh, is is it just a does Texas are the soils just not ideal for golf? I mean, I, I'm sure there there must be some sand area sandy areas somewhere, or maybe not. Well, there is. Uh, last year, I opened a course out near Kilgore, Texas, uh-huh. and as you go east from Dallas, it starts changing gradually from you know the Blackland Prairie, which is big blah nothing for golf but that's where the cities are uh it starts to change the what we call the piney woods it gets closer to atlanta um so i've got a, this course called the tempest in near kilgore texas mm-hmm. and uh you know basically everyone who goes there says this could be pinehurst i mean it's rolling hills it's pines it's uh, beautiful beautiful land i mean not spectacular like the ocean or anything but uh just beautiful beautiful Atlanta or Pinehurst type land with they're not all sandy soils but there's pockets of them Uh, and it's very popular it's already you know very popular and you know one of the better courses in East Texas and there's some good ones out there I ask this question occasionally not very often but I'm curious to get your answer who is the most underrated or underpopularized architect or who deserves more recognition than they're getting right now who's still working well, who's still working, huh? Well, I'll start with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, gets, that's a given. Uh, yeah. Um, nah, for the most part, I think uh, 
you know, the the jobs that come down, I mean, kind of go to the right guys. I mean, again, I'm not as familiar with the, the younger guys who are coming, you know, the protégés or the dokes and the hands that are kind of starting out on their own. I hear they're doing good thing. I mean, I played the Winter Park nine-hole course, and that's very well done. Um, you know, my generation, uh, I don't know, it seems like it's just gone the 10-80-10 route, and uh, maybe there's the middle uh, 80%. Um, I think just more of us are, you know, maybe 15% rather than 10 or, you know, certainly the top half of the middle. Uh, the, the depth of architecture has just, uh, you know, really been good. But, you know, you look at styles. I mean, you mentioned the 80s. How about Gary Kern did uh, that one in Indiana? Oh, not Indianapolis, but Indiana. Um, Purgatory. Purgatory, yeah. <laughs> right. And Talk had, about bunkering. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But there's a guy who, uh, you know, came from a very conservative his father was you know very conservative landscape architecture trained and then somehow got that direction from the owner to do something you know out of the box and uh, you know ex- you know showed so much more creativity than he'd ever been known for um so that that's certainly one that comes to mind um yeah there's got to be others but uh you know again i think uh, Putting in the context of the time, I think we all got a great opportunity in the 80s, you know, for the pure architecture, if there is such a thing as pure design, you know, just to explore, you know, more bunkers than you might have ever put in in the 70s or you'd put in now. Um, And there's a bunch. I mean, I'm looking here in Dallas, you know, Trip Davis has done some excellent work uh, as a great player. My former uh, employee, John Colligan, has done some great work. Good training, of course, but also, you know, <laughs> yeah. just, a, just a talented architect in his own right. Jeff Bloom worked for me. He's down in Houston, done some some good work. Um, you know, Jim Ang, of course, he, he replaced me when I left Killian and Nugent to start my own. So he's got some of the same kind of training that I do. Um, you know, probably the minute we hang up, I'll, I'll think of somebody else outside right. my sphere. But uh, It was interesting. I was talking to Trip Davis about this about he kind of started his career at the tail end of the 80s and into the 2000s and was getting new commissions that was when you know you were building new courses at that time and and then recession hits and we talked a little bit about the mentality and the adjustment you have to make from from being in that environment where you are getting virgin sites and and you know your creativity level is is you know at high peak and then him more so probably than you is really just kind of focused on on renovation restoration now and and how that sort of you know you have to adjust your mindset because that was a really great and fun period and and it's probably not going to come back anytime soon yeah i agree and you know it's a conscious decision on my part i remember killing and you know doing master plan after master plan and maybe doing one tee or two greens or whatever and when they wanted to do a big project they may bring in a reese jones or a big name yeah it's just really frustrating for me to 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 do those i mean uh, i've always preferred either new courses or 18 hole renovations or maybe nine holes at a time a couple of years ago we redid superior national up in also up in minnesota my second my home away from home uh you know you it's those just don't appeal to me one at a time you know a few years ago at the golf show i sat in on stephen k's presentation and you know he says well everybody does a lot of master plans you know he said jeff how many master plans have you done i said well six in 35 years you know (laughs) i i because he was just shocked i mean i don't do a lot of master plans and it just comes back from you know well i actually had a little one sheet business plan just scribbled on a piece of paper it's the last time i think i did pete dye style but you know after watching kelly and anusian do those and 
do the small remodels. I mean, they pay the bills, but they didn't excite me. So, uh, you know, I've done 60 new courses, which is a lot for, you know, those mid-rung architects uh, and, you know, some big remodels. But, you know, again, well, six or seven master plans and a few more now that my courses are old enough to need one. But uh, uh, so it's a, it's I consider going to renovation and restoration, but um you could probably tell from my comments here today that I didn't really sell those very well. I mean, <laughs> wasn't my uh, you know my belief system that things should be restored exactly as they were. So, uh, so my workload slowed down. But you know, I'm getting older. I I could retire right now if I wanted. I don't want, but I could. So uh, you know, I just take the work that I want to do and and uh, skip the stuff that I don't. And for the renovations, as as good as that is, seeing old courses, you know, I got into golf architecture. You know. The first course I ever played was Medina and you know I went home that night age 12 and you know my neighbors took me out there they were members told my mom I was going to be a golf course architect you know so those old clubs are you know they're just fabulous to hang around um, but again I just don't have the personality or mindset to to do small renovations or to do uh, you know long-term master plans or restorations. Well, it sounds like you've worked yourself into a position where you can afford to not not financially, but just kind of kind of afford to not do that, you know, and then work on the things that do excite you. Yeah, um, you know, it's a great position to be in. I remember my dad was sixty four, the age I am now, and he came home one day. He says, "Boy, when does this get any easier?" You know, we all have sort of the idea that your career kind of coasts, you know, mm-hmm. to the end. Um, and he was a corporate guy, and of course, he always said, went nuts when I said, I'm going to start my own two-man business or whatever. Um, but, you know, I kind of achieved what he never could in the fact that uh, it's easier now. I mean, I'm actually not working right now. I'm writing a book uh, called, tentatively called The Green Committee Guide to Golf Course Architecture, kind of a little red book format, oh, searchable God. topics. Talk about um, a, a drinking topic <laughs> yeah happy yeah. hour conversation well you know but not to besmirch my fellow architects past or present but i always said they they use a lot of words and don't say too much with them uh what this is going to be is a, a collection of single topic things that a you know greens committee chairman or a park district director might ask um you know and they, they remember george hw bush lost an election because he didn't understand the vision thing and and this is kind of the book for the the greens guys who don't have the vision thing you know well, i'm remodeling how big should my t's be you know how big does a green need to be for an approach shot you know what's the difference between strategic and heroic um it's going to be one topic at a time it's going to be organized and maybe some people will buy the book hopefully someone will buy the book and and never read the whole thing but just read the one chapter they need or the five chapters they need for their renovation so uh like i say not a lot of highfalutin theory uh just sort of straight ahead rock and roll uh solid information which again i think is lacking in the marketplace so i hope you can never have too much information there you go last question what is your favorite modern golf course that you did not design or were involved in building well modern i'd probably have to go with sand hills uh you know, again, it's a great land, uh, great designers, and, you know, you step on that first tee, and you just know it's someplace special. 
Um, you know, you go to the older generation and, you know, I've been fortunate to play maybe 70 of the top 100, but, you know, the first tee at Royal Melbourne's like that. The first tee at uh, Crystal Downs up in Michigan is like that. San Francisco, the first tee, you just know you're, you're someplace different. Uh, and, you know, of the modern ones, I'd say you know, Sand Hills certainly ranks at the the top of the the list is just standing on the first tee and can't wait to play golf and get off the 18th green and you can't wait to go play again exactly jeff i really enjoyed this conversation i'm glad we got to talk a little dick nugent there's probably not enough discussion at least for my taste in, in golf architecture about the him and the his some of his peers in that generation but i appreciate your insights and that was just a good fun conversation thank you yeah well, i'm glad to do it and like I say love talking architecture rare that someone actually asked me to do so so uh, this was a lot of fun i knew very good questions all right well that was a fun conversation i hope you enjoyed it he's a funny guy easy to talk to a lot of good stories um so thanks jeff for coming on the topic uh, and this is apropos to nothing really but the topic of golfclubatlas.com came up a few times and as i mentioned in the intro jeff's very active there and um it's really kind of cool that an architect will come on to a forum with hundreds of guys who aren't professionals and share his knowledge and, and be willing to to take sort of the the blowback and the beating that that it comes with putting yourself out in a public forum with uh, people that are semi-anonymous. But he's been great at it. And uh, my experience of reading Golf Club Atlas since almost probably the year 2000 when I discovered it was almost life-changing for me on two levels one just the knowledge that that's in that discussion group and uh the the access to historical informations and people's opinions and and it just i mean it pulls the world of golf course architecture into this this one hole it's kind of it can be a black hole of course but but it's really remarkable the influence that that website has had in the education of the uh, world public regarding golf design it's it's stunning so that was one the second was it it almost taught me how to grow up in a way, how to view the world of men. I mean, I was in my 20s probably at that time, but uh, it was very eye-opening to see the, the people on that website uh, basically act like juveniles at times. These are men who are respected in their fields. Many, I'm sure they're professionals, very enlightened and educated uh, sorts of people, mostly men. And they would become so petty and they would fight and they would uh, become tribal and take sides and cut people down and backbite. And I mean, it was just like playground behavior. And it was very eye-opening to me. I think at that point in my life, I just assumed that with age and education, you would uh, have a sort of stature and that kind of behavior was below you. And I remember mentioning this to Rand Morissette, the founder of Golf Club Atlas once, and he just kind of chuckled and agreed with me. And he's had to, he's had to basically evict and kick some really well-known and, and intelligent people off that website over the years. And then other people just quit voluntarily because it gets, uh, it just gets so bitchy and, and personal. And uh, through all of that, Jeff Brower was always has seemed like the adult in the room. Uh, he almost, as far as I can remember, he never flamed, never lost his cool, would get into some very heated debates, wade into debates. They weren't necessarily around him or, or what he was saying, but offer his opinion. And it was always measured and it was, uh, backed by you know solid information facts where uh, pertinent and uh, i was just always really impressed about his demeanor uh, as the the adult amongst what could often look like playground children i still love golfclubatlas.com but and it's much seems much more tamer these days as well but jeff's still there so jump in there and 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 read some of his writings if if you're interested in knowing more about his thoughts that was a great conversation 
Uh, let's let's leave it right there. We'll sign off now. I, I would like to remind you, as I, I did last time, to go to TalkingGolf.com. Uh, this is the website that is the repository for some of golf's best podcasts on the air right now, including the Good Good Podcast, which I do with Rod Morey and Adrian Logue. There's the State of the Game Podcast with Rod Morey, Jeff Shackelford, and Mike Clayton. Talking Golf History with Connor Lewis. John Evans has a good gambling podcast. Uh, Nick Hearn has a, a, a great uh, podcast into the psychological aspects of the game. And, and there's more and more coming as well. So uh, go to TalkingGolf.com. Uh, stay up to date on that. Subscribe to those if you would. Subscribe to Feed the Ball, please. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Feed the Ball, of course. Once again, let me thank Jeff Brower for joining me. I'll have another podcast coming your way soon. I'd like to thank the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Adios.